0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Earlier this month, details were reported about an anti-racist training program initiated in 2020 by CVS, the largest pharmacy chain in the United States. According to documents made public by employees, the program included a lecture by famed activist and author Ibram Kendi who told tens of thousands of CVS employees that, quote, to be born in the United States is to literally have racist ideas rain on our head consistently and constantly, end quote. Even tiny children, Kendi told CVS staff, quote, are basically functioning on racist ideas, end quote. Now, the existence of these programs is old news, of course, and so is the culture war around them. Progressives applaud these programs and conservatives denounce them. Same old, same old. But in the case of CVS, the interesting detail is that these programs were implemented under the tenure of then-CVS President Larry Murlo, who earned 618 times the company's median wage, reportedly the highest such ratio in the United States. Which raises the question, if these anti-racism programs are all about social justice, What is socially just about a system in which the CEO makes more than $20 million per year, while the median CVS employee earns just $35,000, which isn't enough to live on in many cities? That would seem to be a contradiction. My guest on today's podcast, 36-year-old biotech entrepreneur and author Vivek Ramaswamy, says this contradiction is no accident. In his new book, Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, Ramaswamy argues that large corporations use a policy of misdirection, woke smoke he calls it, to signal virtue when it comes to issues of race and identity more generally, while doing little to actually help people in the way that counts most, economically. What's worse, this cynical gambit often involves censoring employees who are off-message ideologically, thus producing a shallow, intolerant, and fearful corporate monoculture. The Veik Ramaswamy joined me last week by Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. One centerpiece in your book is when you describe what happened when George Floyd died. At the time, I think you were CEO. You wrote to your employees and colleagues a note that I thought was reasonable. And people immediately got back to you and said, what are you doing about systemic racism in our society? Which put you in this awkward position because, as I understand, you don't broadly believe in the idea of systemic racism.
2: I really faced a struggle of not wanting to be inauthentic with my employees and reciting the same slogans it seemed to me that my fellow CEOs were reciting on the back of George Floyd's tragic death. But at the same time, I did need to and to borrow many of their lexicons, meet the moment, to be able to address a concern that was on the minds of my employees whether or not I agreed with their underlying views. And so, so we did something there that I described in the book, which was you know use an opportunity to engage in a form of introspection about how we could be a better company in ways that really lifted our company up, but also addressed at least some of the short-term demands of some of our employees, which in that case was to re-examine the diversity of experience that we were drawing from without actually drawing those lines on the basis of race or genetically inherited attributes. and And so that's what we did. and there's there's a program now that certainly helps us draw from, From employees who have come from the same educationally rigorous backgrounds that we continue to draw from, but maybe looking also at people who may come from economic backgrounds that were a little different and may come with debt obligations and student debt obligations, having attended fancy universities perhaps along the way, that we could help alleviate for employees who were with us for four years or more that came out of those backgrounds. So, so anyway, that was the kind of thing that I think I don't think is a perfect solution by any means, but I think was the kind of thing that I did in my time as a CEO to navigate what I think were some complicated situations. But anyway, I think that that led to a process of self-reflection, which over the course of the next seven months led to a choice I had to make, which was one where I either needed to speak with total candor as I have in the book that I published, or I needed to be able to speak in a way that wasn't going to hurt my business. Having both no longer was a choice. And, And I think that I described some experiences in the wake of January 6th and my expression of concern about big tech censorship as applied to political opposition in this country that generated enough responses while I was still CEO, advisors to the company resigning and so forth, that really made clear to me that I had to make that choice if I was going to be principled either as a public speaker on the issue of woke capitalism or as a CEO who was a steward of the business for shareholders. I couldn't do both of those things effectively and with the fullest integrity by trying to do both of those at the same time.
1: You got in trouble for that Wall Street Journal op-ed which was pretty tame compared to some of the stuff in the book. There was one sentence I underlined. You were talking about how a lot of the performative aspects of woke capitalism you describe as the progressive equivalent of dwarf tossing. And I remember reading that like, wow. wow. If you were still CEO and this book came out,
2: I guess that would just be untenable? Well, I mean, I think it would be challenging. Untenable is a strong word, but I think it would be impossible for me to say that i was doing everything that i could to focus on maximizing the value of the business in my capacity as a ceo while speaking out as a citizen in ways that i have as as you put it <laughs> agree or not you can we probably can agree it reflects total candor i can tell you it doesn't and, and hopefully that's believable to the people who read it and and i think that that was the choice that i ultimately had to make it and, and the irony was that i'm actually making a case in the book That we need to separate business from politics and separate politics from business. To be clear, even as I was speaking out on the pages of the Wall Street Journal, occasionally on television over the year prior to the publication of the book, I wasn't using my company as a bully pulpit to use that as a platform for stuffing those values down the throats of my employees or the investors or partners of the company, as so many other people do.
1: After George Floyd died, you said, look, we make drugs that save people's lives, black and white alike, let's focus on that. But that in itself is seen as somehow taking a heretical position.
2: That's right. Silence is violence is sort of the refrain of that moment, right?
1: There's one scene in the book, I hadn't heard of it, of Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, not exactly the kind of firm that, as you say, historically is associated with progressive causes. He went down on one knee. Were people
2: telling you, you got to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's effectively, I mean, nobody said you need to go on one knee, but effectively bending the knee in a figurative sense was what every CEO, I think, was expected to do. And I felt like many of them weren't doing so authentically, but were doing what they needed to do to minimize the cost of the alternative which was fomenting employees and or social activists that demanded that companies adhere to the new orthodoxy. And and I just, on a first personal level, as a citizen, as a thinking person, as somebody who I think prides himself in being straightforward about expressing my true beliefs, didn't want to be in a position to say something I didn't mean about, especially about issues that were so important. And so that was the choice that I had to make. Now, it was easier for me than for certain other companies because of, I think, a groundwork that we had laid a little bit implicitly in our culture that was different than that of other companies. And this is something I talk about in the book. I actually think that, unlike many people who make the narrow case that bi- all businesses should stay clear of all social or political issues, that's not quite what I, that's not the case that I quite make in the book. Certainly by the end of the book, I've drawn some nuances where I actually think that we could have a pluralism of organizations as long as we were honest about what those organizations actually stood for, ex-ante. So so I basically think there's three models, for example, of building a, a company along the axis that we're talking about. One is the apolitical model. That's IBM in the 1950s, which says that, you know, we don't discuss politics at work. I think that you have... A number of businesses, a a couple of businesses that were outliers in Silicon Valley that made headlines. Coinbase in 2020. Coinbase was, you know, I didn't want to call it any one of them. I'm going to say it. (laughs) Coinbase, for example, was was one of a couple of businesses that stepped up in 2020 to say that we are an apolitical environment. And they went so far as to say that actually we frown upon discussion of social or political issues in the workplace. That's model one. Model two is the opposite of that. It says that. It's not necessarily the opposite, but it's very different from it, which is it says that actually we work according to an idea meritocracy where all ideas are welcome for discussion in the workplace. Fashioning the workplace as kind of the equivalent of a liberal arts university ideal. Bridgewater or D.E. Shaw, a lot of elite hedge funds fashioned themselves according to this model. Google in the 1990s at its inception was perhaps the paradigmatic employer that fashioned itself on this model to say that, hey, all ideas are welcome. We're about free and open discourse, and we think creativity is born out of the exchange of free ideas of every kind, social issues, scientific issues, technical issues, have at it. That's model two. And then there's Model 3, which says that actually we uh, we adhere to the model of orthodoxy, which says that in order to work here, you need to believe certain things. And if you don't believe those things, you won't be a fit here. I personally am fine living in a culture where we have a pluralism of organizations that adhere to each of those models. I think the real issue with the modern rise of woke capitalism is you have – fundamentally a lie at the heart of it, where there are a number of companies that would purport under normal circumstances, under days that George Floyd didn't die the prior week, who would claim to be in category A, or especially claim to be in category B, but were in fact, when when times got tough, ultimately behaved as though they were in category C, category number three. And I think that is the, the deception and the lie at the heart of it, That was part of what I wanted to expose, where Google claims to be the kind of employer that fosters not only a free and open workplace, but a free and open Internet. That's the core product that they supposedly are offering as a portal to an Internet that is free and open that they provide an entry point into. And yet, when they do the kinds of things internally that performatively gesture towards that culture, like having open discussion forums where they invite employees to share their perspectives on issues like why there are fewer female engineers at Google than male engineers or why there are... Hi,
1: James Damore.
2: <laughs> James Damore did it. Great. He took the invitation. He shared, by the way, what I personally believe was a perfectly decent accounting for why he thought there were fewer female engineers at Google. He was fired for expressing what he did. He lost his job. He lost his ability to put food on the dinner table. He became not just a pariah at Google. He then became a pariah at Silicon Valley in Silicon Valley as a consequence. And so... That's actually, Jonathan, what I'm writing about in the book is restoring a culture, not just a politic or not just a private sector, but a culture in America. And I think, you know, I know you you may be in Canada, but I think this applies to the liberal West broadly, the classically liberal West broadly, restoring a culture in which people are able to engage in free speech and open debate without having to bend the knee to a particular orthodoxy. And, And I'm writing about one of those orthodoxies that happens to have taken over nearly every institution in elite America at the same time over the course of the last five years. That's the new woke tradition that infects our companies every bit as much as it infects our nonprofits, our philanthropies, our universities, and our other elite institutions. But I think that that's just a case in point for even the future, there may be a different orthodoxy that suddenly infects every major institution. And I think the right answer is first, transparency ex ante, beforehand, about what the true values and the true essential purpose of each of those institutions is. And B, to be able to preserve that pluralism because that's part of what our culture of free speech in in the liberal West and in America in particular depends upon. That's really the real motivator for me.
1: And by the way, when we talk about corporations being forced to sign on to an orthodoxy, I'd say mostly during history, that's been right-wing orthodoxies. Like, what is your corporation doing to win the war?
2: What is your corporation doing to make our country great? I mean, I think in the era of McCarthyism, it was, it was largely a conservative orthodoxy that led to a culture of exclusion that created not only an ideological purge, but was a threat to free speech and open debate in its era. So, so I don't think that this is exclusively a feature of the left. I think it is just predominantly a feature of the left in the current moment in history but the pendulum could easily swing in the direction of conservative intolerance or conservative illiberalism in the future as it has been in eras past but uh, but I'm writing in the present about my experiences as a as a now 36-year-old millennial leading a company and during the era that that I've had my experiences and I think during the moment that we live in if we're being if we're being truthful about it I certainly think if we're being truthful about it we have to recognize that that threat principally comes from this newly nascent wing of the progressive left, not the Occupy Wall Street left, by the way, not the economic redistributionist left, which I think has in some ways been defanged.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that, because there is this incredible tension between traditional economic redistributionist, call it socialist, even Marxist, goals of the left, and what is essentially a sort of elitist, cultural Brahmin view about what social justice should mean. Your book is interesting because there's several layers of grift that you suggest. You know, one grift is you come into an A-type, a political corporation, and it just sort of migrates without anybody saying anything into something that has this social purpose. But there's also
2: what's basically a— Can I just interject one second there? Real short. A social purpose? A social purpose I don't even object to in the sense that every corporation has to have a purpose, but a social purpose that is orthogonal to what was the antecedent purpose. So the migration of one one social purpose to another without alerting
1: anybody, but essentially in a reactive way, getting swept up in a social panic. Yes. But then there's this other, what's essentially a grift, where companies that have amoral business models and arguably do a lot of damage or at least disrupt a lot of lives, adopt symbolic, including maybe philanthropic gestures as a means to burnish their image uh, without addressing any of the underlying substance and it seems like a lot of the wealthy knowledge workers who work for these companies they kind of encourage the grift because it makes them feel better about their privileged lives tell me about fearless girl on wall street because that's a really interesting symbol for a lot of this
2: yeah it really is and i think i think you put your finger on it in in a really in a really nuanced way and i appreciate that so I, it's it's what I in a in a less nuanced way not in the book but when I'm on a two minute television interview we'll call woke smoke you know you're blowing woke smoke to be able to actually observe the first commandment of this new model of woke capitalism where the more ruthless your business is the more woke or progressive you have to act and I know the word woke has been weaponized so I don't want to overuse that word uh, you know even in the year since I named the book the the term woke has migrated in its connotation but Fearless Girl is a good example of demonstrating what we mean, not just in the abstract, but in the form of a particular example, where there was one day in Wall Street, suddenly a statue of a young girl called Fearless Girl that showed up in front of the iconic Wall Street bull. She was standing up to the Wall Street bull. She was a symbol of of feminism and female empowerment on Wall Street, and the placard at her feet said, she, capital S, capital H, capital E, she makes a difference. Now, it turns out that statue had been commissioned by State Street Global Advisors, a large asset manager in the United States, and the capital S-H-E referred not only to Fearless Girl, but also to an exchange-traded fund, which of course is a (laughs) revenue generator for the firm. Oh, this story gets better. So so they market their exchange-traded fund at the same time that they're also marketing their commitment to female empowerment on Wall Street. But then you look a little further and say, when did they decide to actually build this statue? And it turns that it coincide, It turns out that it coincides with a period in history where they face a lawsuit from their female employees, alleging, you know, I, I, I'm not the adjudicator of facts on this. I'm just saying what they allege that they are being paid less, systematically less than their male counterparts at the firm. So what what do you do if you're a company that is faced with a claim from your female employees that claim you're not paying them as much as their male counterparts? You do the natural thing you'd expect. You build them a statue. That's exactly what State Street did. And the kicker to add to all of this is that the person who built the statue, who, 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 the artist who made the statue, Kristen Visible, she was presumably quite energized by what the statue stood for. She was so energized that she made three additional versions of that statue because she believed in female empowerment. She was the artist who expressed that vision. And as I describe in the book, no magic trick is complete with just making the money disappear. You have to bring the money back they sued the statue's creator for making three unauthorized reproductions of the statue. Now, that last part is something that championship-level players of this game, like Goldman Sachs, would never do. That's a newbie move. That's an amateur, insincere, woke capitalist move, as opposed to the championship-level player, insincere, woke capitalist move. That's the difference between a firm like Goldman Sachs and a firm like State Street. Goldman Sachs would never bother suing the statue's producer for making unauthorized reproductions. They would just sell their ETF or their equivalent financial product.
1: And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin, I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to slash Quillette to learn more. For a limited time, Bittrust IRA is waiving the sign up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to slash Quillette. B I T T R U S T I R A dot com slash Q U I double L E double T -T E. And now back to our podcast. You talk, (laughs) great example Goldman Sachs, how they stunningly and bravely came out with a new rule that they would require a diverse board member on the board of companies that they represented commercially. But the timing of that
2: announcement was rather curious. Could you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so, so like the State Street example and like the example I'm about to describe, one of the things that I've learned is interrogating the timing of a company's declaration is is usually a pretty edifying mode of inquiry. OK, so I'll give you Goldman Sachs and I'll give you another example to American Express recently, um, you know, which I can comment upon. And actually, especially, by the way, I should say this occurs for financial firms. Firms in the financial sector tend to be very reactive and in the financial services industry, usually if you're seeing a progressive proclamation, that is a good indicator that there's something deeper going on in the story. But anyway, in the in the case of Goldman Sachs, they make an, a declaration from the mountaintops of Davos, where, by the way, a lot of these declarations tend to come from. Something about Davos invites it.
1: It's like the Mount Sinai of corporate wokeness.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's either all of that clear air or all of that money congregates. <laughs> the, the same fancy ski town. I'm not sure which it is. But either way, uh, Dav- if you want to hear these proclamations, Davos is the place you go. And Davos in January 2020 was chock full of them. One of them was the CEO of Goldman Sachs declaring that he would not take a company public in the United States if its board was insufficiently diverse, where, of course, the arbiter of diversity was Goldman Sachs. And it turns out that that announcement came after the first year or first couple of years in which the entire S&P 500, the 500 stocks that comprise the S&P 500, each had a board that already met Goldman Sachs' stated standard. It came at a time where Goldman Sachs was themselves under significant fire and eventually ended up being liable for having played a meaningful role in a bribery scandal in Malaysia, where it actually defrauded the Malaysian people. One Malaysia fund, I think it was Exactly. Called. And by the way, not accidentally, a time where the frontrunners in the Democratic primary included, I think, at the top of the ticket, Elizabeth Warren at that time, who is of course, another politician who— pays a lot of heed to the temple of identity politics. The once Native American applicant, 116th Native American applicant who checked the box, Elizabeth Warren, who was a frequent pontificator on the topic of female disempowerment, was at the top of the Democratic primary ticket, and she was not taking corporate contributions. She was certainly not going to appoint an alumnus of Goldman Sachs in the seat of U.S. Treasury Secretary, or even appoint alumni of BlackRock, as the Biden administration has done, as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, or whatever whatever positions they occupy today. So when Goldman realized that its tried and true tactic, its playbook, of placing its alumni in government, of making campaign and electoral contributions to win favors in return, which worked really great in the pre-2008 era, earned Goldman Sachs a nice little bailout package on the back of the 08 financial crisis in a way that some of its less adroit competitors like Lehman Brothers never managed to do, now they had to tie that the temple of identity politics in a different way. So, so these things are all pretty neatly wrapped up. And, and, and I just alluded to an example earlier that's more recent after the book came out, an example that I took notice of was American Express recently issuing a statement and a training to its employees about how capitalism, you know, that system Involving financial transactions that are somehow facilitated by these credit cards that Amex sells as their core product, that system of capitalism was systemically racist. Now, that was a curiosity to me, but it also then comes exactly at a time where you have an identity politics-obsessed DOJ that over the course of the last year— has actually been investigating American Express for systematically defrauding small businesses in this country, pawning off their cards and pawning off fees in ways that many businesses allege that they had actually never signed up for. As best I know, according to Wall Street Journal's reporting, that investigation may very well be ongoing. Right now, it was over the last year that the Wall Street Journal reported on it. So I think that every time you see one of these declarations there's, a, there's, a mis, there's, there's almost always, especially in the financial services industry, a form of misdirection involved at the heart of it. And that's a big part of what I wanted to expose in the book. And Jonathan, everything I said so far, I think a principled even identity politic-oriented liberal or leftist or progressive or whatever could agree and get behind the corporate hypocrisy that I'm pointing out and the ways in which that's harmful to public trust in our institutions, to— ultimately public trust and democracy in a deeper way. As it turns out, I also, as a side note, I'm no fan of a diversity edict that operates a corporate board according to a racial and gender quota system. I think that that has negative externalities of its own. I think it's reductionist. I think it's insulting to each of our individual identities, including the very minorities it purports to lift up, including the very women it purports to lift up. Those are my opinions on the, on the substance of the values that these companies are pushing. And in part to lay out my own biases very clearly, I am unapologetic and and totally transparent and and not inhibited about laying out what my perspectives are on the underlying social causes that many of these companies are pushing as well, because I think it's important for people to know where I'm coming from. But the core thesis of the book is actually an indictment that I think holds holds true irrespective of one's views on the validity of the underlying agendas and recognizes that we as a society cannot and should not trust self-interested elites in the form of corporate giants to be able to be the arbiters of moral justice. Those are questions that we ought to adjudicate wherever you land on them, through free speech and open debate in the public square, through the heart of our democracy. And that's, to me, what democracy is really all about. It is not about casting a ballot every November. That's just part of it. That's just fetishizing an act at the end of a process that is much more about a culture that is committed to resolving its most important political questions through free speech and open debate rather than through the use of force, including economic force. And that's actually what the book is calling for, is a restoration of that free speech culture, the very culture through which we settle questions are most important political questions through free speech and open debate where everyone's voice and vote counts equally, unadjusted by the number of dollars that they control in the market. And I think that's what this new model of stakeholder capitalism, that's what this new model of woke capitalism ultimately does is it betrays democracy by demanding that a small group of elites, investors and CEOs determine what's right for the rest of society instead of leaving it to the public square in our democracy at large.
1: Oreo cookies made by Nabisco, huge contributor to obesity, Oreo tweeted out a couple of months ago, trans people exist. Oreo cookies has nothing to do with gender identity. It costs them nothing. But now you've got hundreds of thousands of kids saying, I got a choice between Oreos and Fudgios. But Oreo is the cookie that believes trans people exist. Like at least with the Goldman Sachs campaign donations,
2: it costs them money. It costs them millions of bucks. This is free. I, I think the two are more similar than than you give credit for in the sense that the amount that Goldman Sachs spends relative to their revenue base and their asset base is is a tiny fraction such that the two are more similar than not. But you're totally right. And and by the way, it's not just Oreo cookies. It's Coca-Cola teaching its employees how to be less white or issuing statements about a voting law in Georgia that make it sound more like a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer while saying nothing about the nationwide impact on, again, diabetes and obesity, including, by the way, and perhaps especially the black community that they profess to care so much about. That is exactly a great way of Creating a new misdirection that changes the topic of conversation to something that they would much rather be talking about than a controversy that relates to their core business. It is United Airlines creating a quota system for the pilots in the cockpit. It's Nike, actually, by the way, condemning repeatedly slavery 250 years ago. All the while doing nothing about reducing its reliance on slave labor today in the present day, all the way to use slave labor to source $200 sneakers that they sell to black kids in the inner city who can't afford to buy books for school, yet they t- are, it's easy to proclaim the Black Lives Matter and to remove uh, Betsy Ross Nike flag that they were going to release of, of a sneaker Nike flag sneaker in 2019 around July 4th until Colin Kaepernick deems that flag to be racist. Then they're able to pull it in a signal of, of ultimate virtue signaling. The problem with signaling your virtue, Jonathan, is that at some point, once you've earned a reputation for goodness in the eyes of those who consider themselves virtuous, then signaling your virtue becomes more important than being virtuous itself. And I think that's the essence of the curse of woke capitalism is that we have lost our collective pursuit of virtue as a society in the civic sphere of our lives, perhaps even in the faith-based spheres and family spheres of our lives, because we're able to use the corporate spheres of our lives to co the signaling of virtue with the pursuit of self-interest. And that's also one of the things I talk about in the book that starts at a young age, especially in the United States, is the fact that you teach kids that You do service to be able to get into college, and then you do service in college to be able to get into medical school or law school, and then you donate to charity after you graduate because you get a tax deduction. It's no surprise then that once you become a capitalist, you know neither how to pursue your unabashed self-interest nor how to do pure service for its own sake because we've created a culture and conditioned a generation to teach them that the two go hand in hand together and are inseparable from one another. And I think the right answer is actually to be able to do true unbridled service for its own sake that gives us the sense of moral and psychological security that also allows us to pursue our unbridled self-interest for its own sake too when we're in the sphere of the market, because there are still other spheres of our lives where we're able to exercise our truly charitable, our truly other-regarding instincts in ways that are far more rich and far more meaningful than through commingling the two. And that's a big part of what I'm pointing out in the book.
1: You share some personal details in your book. You you talk about going back to uh, Vataganche, is, is that how, how I pronounce it? Vatagancheri, yeah. But you also talk about going to, I think, a Jesuit-run school in the United States, where I think you became the valedictorian, you, you overcome systemic racism. From what I understand, you were either the only South Asian kid or the only non-white kid in your class. Two decades later, you're running a company, you're not white, but you're being told by people, including privileged white people that you have to take a stand against racism. How do you manage that situation where where you're not white? Is is the bizarreness of the situation recognized by all the players yeah. involved?
2: Yeah, it's really And you said including, it's not including, it's mostly, perhaps near exclusively privileged white kids who went to whatever high school they went to on the Upper East Side of Manhattan before going to Harvard. And then that's not really the employees at our company per se, but those are amongst the people I've been lectured by. And I think that there is a certain irony to it It's not an irony that I sort of wallow in. I'm not a big fan of victimhood culture generally. And one of the things I notice in the United States right now in the black community, in the white community, in the second generation Asian community as distinct from the first generation or immigrant communities is the rise of this new kind of victimhood culture where everyone's competing to prove that they're actually the bigger victim. And I think when we each play that game, we ultimately are entering a losing battle Collectively in the society and the polity that we live in. So, you know, I think that there are times that I've certainly felt irritated by that dynamic. But but the last thing I want to do is, is victimize or portray myself as some type of victim when I, I think the thing that we actually all need to be doing is is hopefully, you know, what I've started to do, or at least tried to do in the book, is start talking openly, honestly, unabashedly, pursuing excellence in each of the ways we each know how, without having to apologize for that at every step of the way, and without, by the way, having to claim that we were, you know, victimized along the way either and using that as some sort of as some sort of bargaining chip in arguments that are settled through force rather than through actually the merit of debate. So, you know, yes there's something ironic to it. Yes, there's something irritating about it. But at the end of the day, I think the ideas stand equally well even if I were a, a privileged white man or a or a privileged black man. Many of many of whom or at the top of corporate America probably fit that description too. And so you know, I'm, I'm, I've am i been privileged and blessed in a lot of ways myself. And so whether or not I went through difficulties growing up in Southwest Ohio, and I did, like many people do, you know, hardship isn't the same thing as victimhood. And all I ask is that everybody else embrace that same attitude as well, because I think that's what it's going to take to be able to spawn a cultural revival that we much need, both in our country and I think in the liberal West more broadly. The Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.